Good morning. Saddam Hussein was, by most definitions, a monster. He's president of Iraq from 1979 until 2003. During that time, he ruled with an iron fist and carried on genocidal attacks against the Kurds in the north, north and against the Shiites. Uh, he, he was finally deposed by a coalition of Western forces in, in 2003. As they invaded, he disappeared until he was captured in a hole at a farmhouse in December of that same year. Most celebrated his capture and later his trial, at which he was convicted of serious crimes against humanity to include the 1982 killing of 148 Shiites. He, he was cruel. And, and many celebrated his hanging three years later in December of 2006. Well, not everybody. Uh, yes, I suppose justice was carried out. And yes, he had been a brutal dictator. But, but while he was incarcerated outside Baghdad, awaiting trial and certain execution... Pastor Sammy Dagger in Beirut, Lebanon, wrote a letter to the American forces who were holding him, seeking to visit Hussein in jail. His purpose? Well, you see, Pastor Sammy had once met Hussein and had presented him with a Bible. He now wanted to share the gospel with this former president and cruel dictator. Was that your first thought when you heard that he'd been captured, to go share the gospel with him? Did, did you ever think for a moment that this man will face eventual execution and, and then face his creator, and he, and he therefore needs the forgiveness offered through Jesus Christ? Did, did you ever think that he deserved, well, Deserved probably isn't the right word. Did, did you think that he should hear the gospel? Or did you think that he, well, that he had what was coming to him? Execution. And eternal torment away from the presence of God. Kind of wonder how God viewed Saddam Hussein. Well, I, I guess I could ask it this way. Is it true that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even the worst of sinners? Now, let's bring it a little closer to home. How do you view our current president, our, our current governing authorities? Are, are your prayers for them influenced by whether or not you agree with their policies? Do you pray for the gospel to reach them? Because you see, you should. Because here's the truth. It does not matter whether the person is a Republican or a Democrat, white or black, male or female, young or old, Muslim or Hindu, Arab or American, liberal or conservative, Jew or Gentile, gay or straight. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish eternally but have eternal life. Do we believe that? It is true that Jesus came to save even the worst of sinners. It is 
true that God desires all people to be saved, which means he desires all to find forgiveness of sins, whether we think they deserve it or not. I mean, how much rebellion puts us beyond the reach of God's grace? We arrived this morning in our study of 1 Timothy, an incredibly important text. It is one that is going to call us as a church to do two very important things. First, it encourages us as a local body of believers, a local church, to develop a global focus. And and secondly, it reminds us that since the gospel alone is true, the gospel is for everyone, everyone, even the worst of sinners. Read it with me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, say this. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Why is it good and acceptable? He desires all men to be saved to come and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For, for there is one God and then one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So here's a question for you to consider. How do you respond when you see sinners acting like sinners? Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. He left him in Ephesus to deal with the problem of, of false teachers. Last week, we saw that included exposing and, if necessary, expelling them from the church. Because here's the problem. They were attacking the integrity of the gospel. They were getting sidetracked and sidetracking the church by strange doctrines. And, and Paul wanted to bring the church back to the centrality of the gospel. I believe that we need to be constantly brought back to the centrality of the gospel. And we need to be reminded that the gospel is for everyone whether we think they deserve it or not. God desires, you see, all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so we pray fervently and regularly to that end. Well, at least we should. We should. How do you respond when you see sinners acting like sinners? Let me give you an outline of the text. We'll get ready to jump into it. Paul's going to tell us to pray for everybody. And under that point, we'll see that he wants us to pray for governing authorities, whether we like them or not. And then he's going to tell us the purpose of our prayers. And it's, a, it's actually a twofold purpose. It's for our personal peace with, so that the, the, we can spread the gospel, and it is for the salvation of all people. And then thirdly, we're going to see the necessity of praying in this endeavor because there is one God for all, there is one mediator for all, and therefore there is one gospel for all. This is a compact passage full of gospel truth. And as we, as, as we look at it, please 
notice the intentional juxtaposition of the words all and one. All and one. Five times he refers to the all. Prayers be made need to be made for all people, verse 1. Prayers need to be made for all in authority. Prayers, uh, because God desires all to be saved. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, and Paul was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher to all. Well, he doesn't really use the word all, but he uses the word Gentiles, which is another way of saying all. It's for everybody. And then he uses the word one both uh, two times, Both in verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator. And therefore, the point of this passage is there is one message of salvation for all. I want you to get that. The message of this text is there is one God, not many gods, and there is one way to reach God, not many ways. And therefore, this one gospel is for all people. And therefore, we ought to be praying for all people. I could could say it this way. I like this. You should write this down. The exclusive message of Christianity necessitates an inclusive worldwide mission. Do you believe that? The exclusive message of Christianity necessitates an inclusive worldwide mission. Inclusive of who? Well, everybody. Let's jump in the text, verses 1 and 2. Paul calls the church, us, to be a praying people with a global focus. Get our eyes off ourselves, lift our eyes a little bit, and recognize we live in a planet. It says, first of all, of first importance, I urge you, like I urged you when I left you there in Ephesus to deal with false teachers, I now urge you to pray for everyone. And he actually uses four different words for prayers, entreaties, prayers, uh, petitions, and thanksgivings. And many try to uh, differentiate minor differences in those words, and I suppose there are. But Paul's point is, no matter When you pray or no matter how you pray, no matter what form your prayer takes, make sure that you at some point pray on behalf of all people. Now, you need to understand that Paul is talking to the church. He's talking to us, Alliance Bible Fellowship. He's talking about church order. You see, he's now turned his attention to, he's going to talk about men praying in the church to women and how they should address appropriately. That'll be fun next week. Uh, the place of men and women in, 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 you read the next few verses. Not right now, read them this week. Uh, to the place of men and women in teaching, uh, to the qualification for uh, elders and deacons. And he's going to round all of that out, chapters two and three, by saying, this is how the church should conduct itself. And he starts with, When you pray, church, pray for the world. Our prayer should include a passion for global evangelization. In other words, one said it this way, the Great Commission should begin with the Great Intercession. The Great Commission should begin with the Great Intercession. Yes, I want you individually to pray for the gospel to reach all people. Yes, go ahead and name specific people that are in your sphere of influence. Go ahead and do that. But we as a church need to be praying for people. The story is told of F.B. Meyer, uh, who one time uh, walked out of his room to see A.B. Simpson, who happened to be the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, weeping on his knees as he held a globe as he prayed for the people, uh, for the gospel to reach all people. 
So, so, so do that individually. But this encouragement is to us as a church. He expected us to pray for the gospel to reach the world. And I want you to know that I was quite convicted about that this week. As a church, we need to develop a global focus, and it needs to go beyond just sending out missionaries. We need to pray very intentionally and very regularly for the gospel to be effective. Uh, too often, perhaps, our prayers are focused on us and, and, and our needs. Nothing wrong with us and, and our needs. We should pray regularly and earnestly for the gospel to reach the very ends of the earth. In fact, John Stott asked the question, he asked this question, I wonder if the comparatively slow process toward peace and justice in the world and the comparatively slow process of world evangelization is the result of the prayerlessness of God's people. Our sovereign God, folks, has invited us to participate with Him in the work of taking the gospel to the world. The Scripture clearly teaches that God hears and answers our prayers. I, I believe that. I believe that our prayers move the hand of God to include evangelism. And so the work of both local evangelism and global missions begins with prayer. You should talk to God about people before you ever talk to people about God. And I believe he likes those prayers, and I believe that he answers them. Specifically, Paul says, pray for the king, for kings and all those in authority. The word king typically refers to the emperor, but it's in the plural, so most agree he's probably talking about lesser rulers throughout the world. And, and by the way, it, it is rightly noted that at this time in history, there were no known Christian rulers. So don't just pray for the Christian rulers, pray for rulers. You should also know remarkably that the emperor, the king, uh, at this time was a guy named Nero. Most secular historians suggest that this guy was a raving lunatic. He was certainly responsible for the what we call the first general persecution against Christianity when he gave the imperial order for them to be arrested and uh, executed. He himself had them thrown to the wild beasts and to lions. He, he had garden parties in which he would soak Christians alive in flammable pitch. He would impale them on poles to use them as human torches. Nice guy. Pray for him. Pray for that guy. So pray for the Iraqi president who, by most accounts, killed tens of thousands of his own people before we got him. Pray for the Saudi king in whose nation Christians are currently being rounded up and persecuted. Pray for the Iranian president in whose country Christians are being imprisoned and tortured as we speak. P pray for North Korea. Pray that it is currently in, in, imprisoning and in, in persecuting Christian leaders. Pray for China's leaders where Christians are systematically persecuted. Pray for the leadership of ISIS. What? How do we pray? That God would kill them? No. What is the purpose of our praying? Point two, we see a twofold purpose of our prayer. The first is for 
is a rather inward focus. It's for the church itself. That is, pray for our leaders that they would govern us in such a way that it is executed with wisdom and grace so that we can lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So, yes, we pray that they will, in a sense, leave the church alone. Fine. Paul's point, though, is that when a government governs well, there is peace and safety for its citizens. Even in the Roman Empire, there was this thing called the Pax Romana or the Roman peace that, that made travel and commerce largely safe. And in the midst of all of that, made the proclamation, the spread of the gospel uh, safe, made it, made it happen. You see, peace allows for the propagation of the gospel. And so the early church prayed for their governmental leaders. And so, for example, we have a, a prayer of one Clement of Rome for governmental leaders near the end of the first century, which I think was during the second or third, don't remember exactly, the second or third general persecution. I think the guy's name was Domitian, a persecutor severe persecutor of the church. Here was his prayer. Grant to them, Lord, these governing authorities, health, peace, harmony, and stability that they may blamelessly administer the government which you have given them. Lord, direct their plans according to what is good and pleasing in your sight so that by devoutly administering in peace and gentleness the authority which you have given them, they may experience your mercy. That's a prayer. That's how we pray for our governing authorities. Not God, will you nuke them? God, will you help them to govern wisely so that we can lead good and godly lives? Sounds a little self-serving, but it's not because we are reminded of the words of both Jesus and Peter that by our good lives, people will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, likely by coming to faith in Christ. The idea is pray that we are allowed to live our Christian faith before people around us so that we can live godly and dignified lives and point them to our Savior. But not only do we pray for peace, verse 3, we pray for them evangelistically. The, 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 these prayers, he says, are good and acceptable to God our Savior. Remember, remember that, God our Savior, he's making a point. That's an unusual designation. We typically, typically think of Jesus as our Savior, which is true. But we, we remember that God is our Savior and that he sent his own son. We say it this way, that the salvation is the plan of God carried out by the Son and applied by the Spirit. So we pray for them to God our Savior. He, he's, he's, he's tipping his hat. What are we praying for? We pray to them, to God, we pray for them to God our Savior who likes those prayers. They're good and acceptable. Why? Because we are praying for their salvation. And God likes that, verse 4, because he desires... He desires all men, all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That is a knowledge of the truth of the gospel. God, believe it or not, even wants governing authorities, even those with whose policies you object, he wants them to be saved. Do we pray for them to that end? Or do we pray more about their policies? 
John Chrysostom, who was known as Golden Mouth, great preacher, rightly said, no one can feel hatred toward those for whom he prays. So you having trouble with somebody? You having trouble with one of our governing authorities? You having trouble with somebody that you work with? Having trouble with someone you go to school with? Then pray for them because prayer replaces hostility with compassion. It's very difficult to not like someone when you're praying for them. And the fact is, God desires all people to be saved. God desires all people to be saved. Again, please notice you use the word all over and over. Pray for all. Pray for all in authority because God desires all to come to a knowledge of the truth even if we don't. And this verse desires all to be saved. Verse 6, he's a ransom for all, presents some interesting theological challenges. Some of you are thinking that presents some interesting theological challenges for you, Scott. Because if God wants everyone to be saved first, why doesn't He just save everyone? Some have taught that this, that's what this verse teaches, that it teaches a universalism, but that would contradict the rest of Scripture. Uh, while God loves His creation and does desire all to be saved, that salvation is dependent on people believing the gospel. I believe that. Only those who believe will be saved, which begs another question. How does this, and I know you're dying to ask it, how does this, Scott, square with your teaching on election or predestination? You say that God has predestined some to be saved. If He wants all to be saved, why doesn't He just predestinate everybody? And you say, Scott, that this salvation is dependent on belief. Now you're saying that, which is what I've been saying all along. So we share the gospel, and whoever wants to be saved can be saved. Right? Right. I have always said that. Yes, people, God wants everyone to be saved. Yes. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to take this for what it says. Some, some, some people try to explain all of this away and redefine the words all or, or, or saved or, or, or um, whatever the third one is, can't remember. Uh, but, but I'm just going to take it for what it says. Some say these doctrines of God's predestination and man's free will are an antinomy. That is... We'll never be able to figure it out in our finite minds, but, it, but somehow it comes to, together in the mind of God, and I'm frankly okay with that. <coughs> I'm just going to teach what the Bible says. <coughs> I know when I taught on election that some, of, some people didn't like it. Maybe some of you didn't like it. Some even left the church. Okay, take that up with Paul. It's in the Bible. And now I'm going to teach this verse. God desires everybody to be saved. Here's the point. We need to pray with a global focus that God will save all people, that they will come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's my job. And I'll let God do His and save whoever He wants. Our job is to pray for God to save people. John Stott says it further this way. Scripture indubitably that means unquestionably, teaches divine election. Yet, this truth must never be expressed in such a way as to deny the complementary truth that God wants all people to be saved. 
I believe that. Do you? Second Peter chapter 3 says the same thing. God is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He wants that, and so we pray. And I believe that as we pray, he hears and answers those prayers because he likes those prayers. He loves people, and he wants them to be saved. So pray, people. Pray for everyone. And, and, and pray for this personal peace to advance the gospel. That he'll save people. We'll let God sort who the all is. Now, why is it necessary that, that we pray for God to save people? Point three, because, because Paul says there is one God and one mediator which necessitates a universal call or necessitates a uni universal invitation to salvation. This is incredibly important. Prayer is necessary because there is one God who saves and there is one mediator who reconciles. That means that there is one message of salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, this gospel is for everyone. And so we pray that everyone will believe it. Look at verse 5. There, for there is one God. This is a true taught throughout Scripture, one that I've been hammering for weeks now. Some of you say actually for years. That's fine. There is one God. That is, there are not many gods. And since there is one God, get this, this is his point, he is the God of everyone. You hear me? Since there is one God, he is the God of everyone. This is Paul's point in Acts chapter 17 when he went to, to Mars Hill. And he says, I noticed that you've got this altar to the, to the unknown God. That's the one I want to talk to you about. The rest of these are not gods at all. You, you can't have a God made out of silver or gold or made out of stone. There's one God, by the way, through whom he has appointed judgment to his son. Same truth. The fact that there is only one God means that there is only one God of all people, and therefore all people need to know who this one God is. You with me? This is why we pray for all people, because there is only one God who can save them. You hear me? We pray because there's only one God who can save them. Isaiah 45 says it this way. Turn, God is speaking. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, everybody, for I am God and there is no other, meaning there's no other God who can save you, so turn to me, I'm it, I'm all you've got. And you say, okay, I'm following, I'm checking with that, there's only one God, but hey, maybe he's known by different names in different religions. Why can't this one God who's really, really big, it's too big to fit into one religion, who, who, why can't this one God who wants all to be saved save them in different uh, ways in different religions? Good question. But the answer is nope, can't have that. Paul says there's one God and one mediator between this one God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It's actually rather startling in the Greek. There is one mediator between God and men, man Christ Jesus. Just one. 
Mediator, by the way, is one who stands between. He's the go-between and represents, this is very important, he represents one party to another, one who is able to affect reconciliation. Now, why is it that there can only be one here who can mediate? Because a mediator has to have the ability to bring both parties to the table. And who, had, who was able to bring the two parties, God and humanity, to the table except the one who is both God and man, the divine son of God and son of man. He alone is able to mediate because he alone is able to represent God to man and man to God. This is Paul's point. There is only one mediator of this one God, so you cannot approach God in the way of your own making. That is, without this one mediator, you can't get to him. He can only be approached through Jesus. And so all of those who worship other deities but don't want to approach him through God's prescribed way, Jesus was a nice guy, Jesus was a nice prophet, Jesus was a good moral teacher... This is not to approach him through this divine mediator. I want to tell you they are they're in trouble. And they are worshiping not the true God, but false gods. It's only one, one way. And exactly what then did this mediator do to bring us to the table where he could mediate and bring reconciliation? Verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all. There, we, there you are again, back to the all. This is not a contradiction of Matthew and Mark who say the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, so which one is it? Is it all or, or many? And those of you that are a little bit more astute know that this brings us to the discussion of limited or unlimited atonement. Well, is it unlimited or is it unlimited? Is it for many? Is it for all? Not Paul's point. What he wants us to see is this. There is one God who sent his one son to be the one mediator between God and all of humanity. There is one God who desires all to be saved and gave his own son to be a ransom for all people. And this, my brothers and sisters, is why we pray for all people. Whatever, listen to me, Whatever you decide about the scope of the atonement or the extent of the atonement, you must not limit the scope of the mission. You cannot. The gospel must be preached to all. The gospel must be offered to all because there is only one mediator. So don't miss this. This one mediator is uniquely qualified because, Paul says, because of his person and his work. Notice how Paul takes us from the incarnation through the crucifixion all the way to his mediation. Three words here refer to him and his work. He is man, he is the ransom, and he is mediator. He is man, Christ Jesus, in that he became flesh at his incarnation. The Son of God became the Son of Mary. And so he could then rightly represent us to God. In his flesh, he became a ransom. This points to his cross work. This was, notice, this was a voluntary act. He gave himself. He laid down his life for the sheep. No one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. 
not only was it voluntary, notice it was sacrificial. He gave himself. He sacrificed himself for his people. Not only was it voluntary and sacrificial, it was substitutionary. He gave himself for or on behalf of all. That means he died in our place. And he died as a ransom. Ransom speaks of redemption. The word was used of buying a slave out of the slave market. So also we were slaves of sin, Romans and Galatians tells us. But Jesus paid the price as a ransom to purchase or redeem us from this slavery to sin. My brothers and sisters, we have been ransomed. This is good news. He alone paid the price that we owed and could not pay. He he alone paid the price that only God could pay. That's why he's the one mediator. There can be no other. And this testimony came at the proper time, meaning Jesus came at just the right time, fullness of time, Paul says in Galatians 4. And this good news must be proclaimed to all people because there's only one God and one mediator between us and he paid a very high price to ransom us. We must not diminish the value of the cross by saying we don't need the mediatorial work of the Savior. Verse 7 as we close. For this good news, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher And an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul refers to himself in three significant ways. A preacher is one who proclaims good news. An apostle is one who is sent as an emissary by a a king, for example, with good news, to herald good news. Then he throws in that parenthetical, I'm not lying, which perhaps suggests that the false teachers were questioning his apostolic authority. I'm not lying. I was appointed a teacher to instruct in the ways of the, of the gospel. To whom was he appointed? Gentiles. This is his way of referring to everybody. Because the gospel is for everyone. Because God desires everyone to be saved. And, and because Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. You don't have to try and, and, and figure out who the gospel is for. The gospel is for everybody. Even people you don't like brings us back to the beginning. Because there is one God and one mediator for all people, we then pray for all people to be saved. We should be a local church with a global perspective, intentionally and regularly praying for people to be saved. So we're going to do that right now. I ask you to stand to your feet. Father, we as a church, as a local body, we bow with hearts united to pray. And there are certainly lots of, of things that we can, we can pray about, even some international things that we can pray about. The Ebola crisis, terrible, horrible thing, and we ask that you would stay its hand but, 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 Father, right now we want to obey this text and we want to pray for people. We want to pray for leaders. We want to pray for our leaders. Our president, his vice president, his cabinet, our Congress, our state and local leaders. 
We're not going to pray for policies right now, Father. We're going to pray that you would help them to govern wisely. Yes, but we're going to pray for their salvation. I don't pretend to know the spiritual condition of all of those people, but I don't need to. You do. And so right now, we pray for the salvation of lost leaders. Not only here, but we pray for governmental leaders, the the current Neros of the day. We, we, We pray for the president of Iran. We, we pray for the leadership of ISIS. We pray for the leaders in China and, and, and in Saudi Arabia and, and in Egypt and there's all those Middle Eastern and, 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 and North African countries and North Korea. We pray for them right now, not that you would nuke them, but that you would save them. That the gospel, I don't know how, but <laughs> your hand is not too short, that, that you would save them. I think of Saeed Abedini, who is in prison. You took Paul to prison in Rome so that he could, so that the Caesar's household would hear the gospel. Uh, maybe that's why you have Saeed there. We pray that the gospel would shine brightly and that you would draw people to yourself. Father, would you um, forgive us for this oversight for not regularly and intentionally praying. We pray for our missionaries, but would you help us to pray very specifically for people? Break them with law and save them with gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. May they see him as more than a prophet, more than a good person, more than a historical character. May they see him as the very son of God who gave himself to be their ransom. Help them to know forgiveness of sin. Help them to come in right relationship with you so that when they face you in the future, as Saddam Hussein did in 2006, that they stand clothed in the blood of Jesus Christ, his righteousness alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.